0: Good evening, humans. This is the Bedtime Banshee Podcast with Jessie Jones. A show that brings you disturbing, but true stories from all around the world. Every week, I will tell you a strange and possibly disgusting fact about a strange and possibly disgusting place, horrify you with an awful idea from the history books, tell you what's weird and wonderful in the headlines, and finally, tell you a very disturbing bedtime story. So without further ado, Here's your strange and disgusting tale about a strange and disgusting place. The Famadihana is a traditional festival celebrated in both urban and rural areas of Madagascar among the Malagasy communities. Famadihana is a funerary ritual known as the turning of the bones. The Malagasy people believe their ancestors serve as intermediaries between the living and God and therefore have the power to intervene in events on earth. Although many ethnic groups in Madagascar practice a fusion of Christianity and traditional beliefs, most do not believe in the concept of heaven or hell. They believe that the dead do not move on to the next life immediately and in fact remain in the land of the living until their bodies have completely decomposed. The process of Famadihana starts when an ancestral spirit appears to a senior family member in their dreams, saying he or she is cold and needs new clothes. After settling on an auspicious date for the ceremony with a local astrologer, living family members will then remove their ancestors' remains from their family crypts, carefully peel the burial garments off the corpses, and wrap them in fresh silk shrouds. Meeting the dead relative again is regarded as a cause for celebration and sadness is discouraged. The relatives will then dance with the corpses around the tomb to live music. Just before the sun sets, the bodies are carefully returned to the tomb and turned upside down. The crypt is then closed for the next five to seven years, after which the ritual is observed again. Now it's time to examine an awful idea that affected the course of human history. German chemist Joseph Wilbrand was working on some new chemicals when he invented a new chemical compound in 1863. He originally intended the compound to be a yellow dye, but as it turned out, trinitrotoluene isn't just a good dye, it's also explosive. We now know it as TNT. TNT has an extremely high activation energy, meaning that you need a lot of energy to get it to blow up. Naturally, nobody was trying to make their yellow shirts explode, so its destructive capabilities remained hidden. Wilbrandt's peaceful invention wasn't actually used for death and destruction until around about 1902, when the German army discovered that it was explosive. After a lot of mucking around, they added aluminium to the most advanced isomer of TNT to produce an explosive composition, which eventually supplanted the commonly used picric acid as the preferred explosive compound for World War I. To get around the high activation energy needed for the explosions, The Germans used TNT as fillers for artillery shells. The impact of the shell would provide enough energy to ignite the TNT, thereby creating a huge explosion. Ships, artillery guns and tanks all started using TNT shells. As the British and American armies started to adopt Germany's use of TNT, the limited supply of toluene needed to produce the explosive struggled to meet increased worldwide demand. The addition of ammonium nitrate to TNT created amatol, which was used in highly explosive shells and later in World War II landmines. Thousands were killed and maimed by Vilbrand's dye. Gotta feel sorry for the guy, he just wanted to make some nice shirts. Now for the strangest story making the headlines this week. An eight-year-old girl has pulled a 1,500-year-old sword from a lake in southern Sweden. And like anything related to myth, her story imparts important lessons. Specifically, that you should always keep up with your tetanus shots. When eight-year-old Saga, which is incidentally the most thematically appropriate name possible for this story, Varnacek, was skipping stones on a hot day in July on the shore of Lake Vidostorn she noticed something strange in the lake and pulled it out. At first sight, she thought the brown corroded stick might just be, well, a stick. But seeing as this stick had a hilt, she and her father contacted a local archaeologist who confirmed that she had indeed effortlessly retrieved an ancient sword from the water, reminiscent of the ancient Arthurian legend of Excalibur. So reminiscent of legend, in fact, that the discovery was intentionally kept a secret until this week, out of fear that the quiet nature retreat would become overrun by relic hunters during the summer. Oddly enough, children pulling legendary weapons out of the water is becoming a bit of a trend. Only a year ago in Cornwall, England, seven-year-old Matilda Jones found a sword in the very lake where legend says Arthur was given Excalibur. But that young lady's sword was discovered to be a male ordered fantasy sword belonging to basement dweller Mark Wilkins, who says he put the sword there in the 1980s as an offering to the Celtic gods. In contrast, Saga's find appears to be a genuine millennium and a half old pre-Viking sword, confirmed by the later discovery of an ancient brooch nearby. Despite intense speculation on social media, there was no immediate confirmation from Swedish authorities that Saga would usurp the current monarch of Sweden, Carl Gustav, and be crowned Queen of Sweden. However, she could just be biding her time to rally together an army before making her move. Now, it's time for the final segment of the show. A bedtime story that will make sure you never sleep again. The infamous character known as H.H. Holmes killed at least nine people, confessed to as many as 30 murders, but he may have been responsible for up to 200 according to some estimates. But it wasn't the number of victims that earned Holmes his place in serial killer history. It was the way the deeds were done Born as Herman Webster Mudgett, H.H. Holmes was already a consummate man, grifter and bigamist prior to his arrival in Chicago in 1886. He changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes to evade punishment from his previous scams. One particularly ghoulish scheme had Holmes stealing cadavers from the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery, mutilating them then claiming the bodies were victims of accidents to collect insurance money. Upon his arrival in the Windy City, Holmes set himself up as a pharmacist. He then began work on a building he called the World's Fair Hotel. This sprawling structure of hallways and rooms, now dubbed the Murder Castle, was three stories tall and a full block long. Holmes advertised it as a lodging space for visitors to the upcoming Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Of course, the not-so-good Dr. Holmes had far more sinister intentions. Holmes repeatedly swapped out workers during the construction process. He claimed their efforts simply did not meet his standards. In truth, Holmes replaced staff to ensure no one figured out his demented design. Holmes's hotel was a maze of murder. Stairwells ended abruptly, doors opened onto walls or were outfitted with perplexing locks that would seal a person inside. Bedrooms were soundproofed, alarm mechanisms monitored the movement of guests. It was into this maze that Holmes lured his victims. He asphyxiated, hanged, gassed and starved his targets. Upon death, bodies were usually dropped down a shaft that led from their rooms to the basement. Once downstairs, Holmes would then dissect his victims' bodies, using his connections with the medical community to sell their bones and organs. Giant furnaces, lime pits, and acid baths were installed in the lower level and were used to dispose of any unwanted remains. When the World's Fair ended, Holmes left Chicago and his murder castle behind him, engaging in another insurance scheme that led to the murder of an associate named Benjamin Pitterzell and his three children. Holmes was finally arrested in Boston in 1894, at which point authorities traced his history back to Chicago and entered the murder castle. There they found his maze of torture chambers secret shafts, and subterranean dissection facilities. Given Holmes's methods, authorities found no complete human remains. However, authorities did uncover a pile of bones. Much of those remains were animal in origin, but the mound did include the bones of a child aged six to eight years old. Also recovered from the murder castle was a gold chain and a woman's shoe, a bloodied heap of women's clothing, and a dissection table spattered with dried blood. Despite the forensic limitations of the time, police were able to positively connect H.H. Holmes to nine murders. The suspect confessed to many more, although some of the people he named later turned out to be alive. Tried for the murder of Pitezel and found guilty, Holmes was hanged on May the 7th, 1896. His neck failed to snap when the trap was sprung, and it took a full 20 minutes for him to be pronounced dead. Although he didn't seem to fear the gallows, he asked for his coffin to be encased in cement and buried 10 feet deep so that his body might avoid dissection. Ironic. In 1914, Pat Quinlan, the former caretaker of Holmes's World Fair Hotel, committed suicide by ingesting strychnine. His body was found along with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Quinlan had been questioned by the police in the course of their investigation, but was never charged. His first hand knowledge of the murder castle and the horrors that happened within its walls followed him to his grave. As for the murder castle itself, much of it was destroyed by a mysterious fire in 1895. Two men were reportedly seen fleeing the structure shortly before it burst into flames. Some believe these two were destroying evidence, while others believe the people who set the blaze were Chicago residents who wished to stop the site from becoming a morbid tourist attraction. Seems like dark tourism isn't just a thing for millennials then. Anyway, portions of the structure remained in use until 1938 when it was torn down completely. The post office currently occupies the plot. Holmes's history as a con man and liar makes it nearly impossible to verify the total number of victims he may have killed. Many people came to Chicago during the World's Fair and never returned home and some estimates have placed the number of Holmes's potential victims as high as 200. The end of that spine-chilling little tale brings episode 5 of the Bedtime Banshee podcast to an end. I truly hope your stomach churned with fear and horror throughout the show and that the resulting heartburn keeps you up until the early hours of the morning. A little gift from me to you. If the Bedtime Banshee causes you to have panic attacks and severe insomnia... Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and to join me again next week for another blood-curdling episode. Can you brave the banshee?